I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 15th, 2012. Coming up, we'll hear about a new study showing how the climate is rapidly changing in Antarctica. We've discovered that this is one of the most rapidly warming regions on Earth. And we'll hear about what's in store for the future of seismology in Haiti three years after the devastating 2010 earthquake. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. It's an unfortunate fact that's been known for a while. Despite spending a lot more per capita on health care than any other country, the United States lags far behind other advanced nations in keeping its citizens healthy. But a new report from the National Research Council and the Institute of Medicine shows that gap is even wider. That is to say, on average, Americans die sooner and experience higher rates of disease and injury than people in other high-income countries. It's true for everyone, from newborns to 75-year-olds. Even Americans with health insurance, a college education, higher incomes, and healthy lifestyles. Any way you slice it, Americans are less healthy than citizens of 16 other wealthy nations included in the study, including Australia, Canada, Japan, and much of Western Europe. The U.S. is at or near the bottom in several areas of health, including preventing infant death and low birth weight, homicides, HIV and AIDS, obesity and diabetes, heart disease, and chronic lung disease. On a brighter note, the council reports that, compared to the competition, Americans smoke less, die less often from stroke and cancer, and have lower blood pressure. But overall, why are we slipping so far behind our peers? The panel pointed out that we Americans are more likely to eat too much, and we end up in more car crashes and gun attacks. Compared to our wealthy nations, we have relatively high rates of poverty, and our kids are less educated. None of these factors bodes well for our health. Here's one for all you Colorado runners out there. We've seen a growing trend of barefoot running, or running in toe shoes, the shoes that conform to your feet complete with separate cavities for each of your little toes, and the ones that help give Boulder the worst-dressed city award by New Yorkers. The idea is that this barefoot or pseudo-barefoot running is more natural and easier on the body, given that the human foot evolved to millions of years of barefoot running before people started using shoes. Now, research is addressing whether there is a right way to run barefoot. The accepted method, it seems, is to land on the forefoot first to avoid a high-impact heel strike. But this idea was based on research on just one population of habitually barefoot people. Recent research by scientists at George Washington University shows that running patterns differ between different habitually barefoot populations. And the research suggests that these running patterns may depend on speed, running habits, and the hardness of the ground. The researchers studied the Dasanich of northwestern Kenya, and they found that most participants used a rear foot strike at endurance speeds. Some, but not all, switched to a forefoot strike when running at high speeds. Researcher Brian Richmond said, quote, The challenge ahead is to identify the most important factors that influence how barefoot people run and the healthiest style for today's runners. But it would seem that there is no one optimal way to run, at least on a moder- based on a modern-day barefoot society. Think about that the next time you go running with your feet on natural. The study was published in the most recent edition of the online journal Plus One. 
Last summer, scientists gave us reason to revisit the day in middle school health class when we heard what was meant to be alarming news, that marijuana would dumb us down. Last year, researchers at Duke University conducted a study comparing levels of marijuana at various stages in life to changes in IQ level. They used data from an earlier study that documented the behaviors and brain development of over a 1,000 people from their birth to age 37. The researchers concluded that people who begin to use marijuana during adolescence and who continue to smoke it heavily can develop permanently decreased IQ as adults. But a researcher in Oslo, Norway, named Ole Rogberg, has just challenged that claim. Rogberg's new study suggests it's premature to conclude that early marijuana use can actually lower one's IQ. He argues that the previous study failed to account for factors he says may also impact IQ levels over time, such as childhood traits, environmental characteristics, exposure to marijuana, education level, and occupation. The new study suggests that socioeconomic status, which is a measure of income, education, and occupation, could be the cause for the decrease in IQ, occurring specifically after adolescence, just as much as marijuana use. Teens who grow up in a low socioeconomic status environment are at a risk of missing school, dropping out, and committing crimes, all factors that limit their intellectual development. But before you tell your kids to feel free to light up, Know that the new study says that the potential link between cannabis use and brain development in adolescence can't be ruled out. The study was just published in the PNAS Early Edition. On January 12, 2010, just over three years ago, a magnitude 7 earthquake shook Haiti, taking more than 200,000 lives and displacing an estimated 2 million. Still today, the International Organization for Migration estimates hundreds of thousands of people are without permanent homes, and in many ways, Haiti seems no closer to rebuilding than it did three years ago. But there is something it is much closer to having, and I had the pleasure of speaking with them last month at the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco. Here's my report. Okay, my name is Robbie Dewey. I'm a PhD student now at Purdue University working with Eric Gallet. My name is Steve Simmet. I'm also a PhD student in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Science at Purdue University now. I'm from Haiti. Roby Dewey and Steve Simmet will be filling an important role in their home country in several years when they finish their PhDs. So there's no seismologist in Haiti? No, we're going to be the first. The first Haitian seismologist. At the time of the earthquake, Haiti had no seismologist. In fact, Haiti had and still has no university earth science program. Dewey and Simmet were chosen for scholarships to complete their master's degree in seismology from among the ranks of students studying civil engineering. They were at the top of their class. They have now both finished their master's degrees at Purdue University and are moving on to their PhDs. We knew that that there was a seismic risk. We didn't know exactly what kind of acceleration do we need to expect or what kind of magnitude. But um, we also know that the construction was very bad and that for any moderate earthquakes will have uh, a lot of damages. They knew about the seismic risk in Haiti because of their civil engineering studies, and they did take the seismic risk into account when designing structures. We, we do not know how big it could be, how, 
how the shaking is going to be, if it's going to be 1G or a little bit less, 0.3G, we didn't have any idea. It's kind of difficult to get it if there's no no data to can show you what's. Because beforehand, there was no station that can tell you what's the acceleration. In case you didn't catch that, Dewey said that they didn't know what ground acceleration to plan for in their structural designs because there was only one seismic station in the country, and that was just for educational purposes. Shortly after the earthquake, various international science groups installed a network of seismometers in Haiti, enabling Dewey and Simit to complete their current research. To understand the implications of their research and why it matters, it's worth discussing a little background. Because there were no local seismometers in Haiti at the time of the main earthquake, scientists could not define the fault plane on which the Earth slid. I'll let Dewey explain why this is important momentarily. At first, scientists pointed to the Enriqueo Fault, a major strike-slip fault running through southern Haiti. Strike-slip faults, like the San Andreas in California, occur where one slab of Earth moves laterally past another. Now, the tectonics of the Caribbean are complex, but in a simplified view, Haiti is caught between two plates, the North American plate to the north and the Caribbean plate to the south. These plates are constantly moving, trying to grind past each other and occasionally slipping, which causes earthquakes. Researchers, including Dewey and Smith's advisor, Eric Collet, had published findings in 2008 showing that the Enriqueo Fault was capable of a magnitude 7 earthquake, just like the one that was soon to strike in January of 2010. So if it was the Enriqueo Fault that broke, the energy it had stored up was released, left to build up again over time. But mounting evidence showed this wasn't the case. It appeared a different fault had ruptured, one that was previously unmapped. Dewey's work confirmed this idea. Since usually the aftershocks lie on four plane, the hard rock job, so by relocating the aftershocks, you could possibly see the fault if it was the main shock, if it was the Enrico fault or another secondary fault. So by locating the aftershocks, smaller earthquakes coming after the main shock of January 12, 2010, Dewey could essentially draw out the faults along which the Earth slid. His work points not to the Enriqueo, but a different fault, called the Laogan Fault. This fault doesn't actually reach the Earth's surface, which explains why scientists didn't know about it before the earthquake. And why does it matter which fault actually broke? It matters because it can give, a, give us a good idea of the hazard that has left in Haiti. For example, if the Enriqueo Fault had rupture, meaning that it will take a long time to load again, but if it didn't rupture, as we can observe, so there's a possibility. Either it has been pushed away from failure, or it has been pushed closer to failure. So that's another way to tell that people that the hazard is still there, because the fault that we thought that was kind of rupture wasn't the one that had ruptured during the earthquake. The hazard is still there. The fault scientists originally thought had ruptured had not, which means it still has the potential to do so. Simmet's research yields similar risk implications for the population of Haiti and plays off Dewey's results. Since he, he has now the uh, more precise fault plane for, for the earthquake, so I'm using this, this fault plane to come up with a more robust solution for the slip distribution. And then using this slip distribution, I can determine the stress change everywhere in the medium. He looked at stress changes on the various faults around Port-au-Prince, meaning he looked at how the earthquake affected pressures on different segments of both the fault that ruptured, the Laogan Fault, and the Enriqueo Fault, and a third fault called the Trebe Fault. 
He found that while on some segments of these faults stress had decreased or stayed the same, other segments had been pushed closer to failure, that is to say, closer to an earthquake. So it means that the hazard still remains. It will likely happen sooner than... Sooner, but we, we don't know yet. when. So both Dewey's and Simmet's research to date indicates that the seismic hazard in Haiti is not gone. In fact, it hasn't even diminished over what researchers understood it to be before 2010. The trick is getting people to pay attention and to prepare. The biggest problem in Haiti is, is not the, 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 the hazards. Yeah. It's the economic... So at some point you have to um, to think about how to make people aware of these hazards yeah. while they, they have to, to think about other problems. their other problems. Dewey and Simit were both in Port-au-Prince when the earthquake struck. During the earthquake I was at home, and then the earthquake happened, and it was scary. I was at a friend's house, we were eating, and then suddenly... The earth started shaking, and immediately I know it was an earthquake, but um, for the other people, it, it, it was very scary, and for me too. Unfortunately, the, the house didn't collapse. The area the two were in suffered less damage than other parts of the city because the homes were built on bedrock, whereas downtown Port-au-Prince is built on sediment. Bedrock transmits the seismic waves while sediment amplifies them. Do you guys have any friends or family who lost their? We are friends. Yeah, we are friends. Yeah. We lost friends. I think that everyone, everyone's in in Puerto Prince. Puerto Prince have lost someone. Have lost someone. Friends or family. The scholarships to Purdue require that Dewey and Simmet return to Haiti for at least two years after they finish their studies. We have to, we have and to. we want to. Yeah. I said that I hoped what happened in 2010 wouldn't happen again. It will. <laughs> it will happen. But so we, we hope the only that thing that we can do is to be ready. Yeah. Hopefully things are changing. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> things will change. Things will change. But not in three years or five years. That is to say, not before Haiti's first seismologists have their chance to find their way back home. Dewey and Simit are not the only students studying seismology abroad right now. They told me there is at least one other student studying in France. Scientists like Dewey and Simit's advisor, Eric Collet at Purdue, recognize the need not only to study the earth in Haiti, but to build capacity so that Haitians can work to assess and address their own seismic hazards. One major issue facing Nui and Simit in returning to Haiti with their PhDs is actually having a job. Right now, there is no financial home for a seismologist in Haiti. When I asked them about it, Simmet said, it's the elephant in the room. But they also said that, as pioneers, figuring out a model for seismology research in Haiti is part of their job. And hopefully, they will be the ones to rear the next generation of Haitian seismologists. You're listening, and so are the penguins. To How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Susan Moran. You've probably heard by now that 2012 was the warmest year ever in the U.S. We're not the only ones overheating, not that you'd feel it outside. At the bottom of the world, over the last 50 years, West Antarctica has warmed more than scientists had thought. The implications are huge. 
an enormous ice sheet there may be at risk of long-term collapse, which could cause sea levels to rise alarmingly. To discuss the new study and its implications for us all, we have in the studio Andrew Monahan, a climate scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, here in Boulder. Dr. Monahan co-authored the study, which was recently published in the journal Nature Geoscience. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So first, give us a sense of West Antarctica, as opposed to the Western Antarctic Peninsula. So where, where is this region and that huge continent? Sure. Uh, West Antarctica lies at the base of the um, Antarctic Peninsula. Uh, West Antarctica, um, Antarctica itself has two ice sheets. Uh, there's the East Antarctic Ice Sheet, which, which is a um, very large uh, volume of ice. The West Antarctic Ice Sheet is a little bit smaller and a little bit lower in elevation. It's about the same size as Greenland. And um, to, put, to give that some scale... Um, West Antarctica is a little bit larger than the country of Mexico. So it's a pretty large area. That's pretty large. Yeah. Right. And so we've been hearing sort of over, over many years that Antarctica, much like the Arctic, but even more so, is warming and warming faster than scientists thought. Has there been much debate? And what are you bringing to the table with this study? There has been quite a bit of debate about uh, atmospheric temperature changes uh, throughout Antarctica and much more so than, than in the Arctic where the, the warming signals have been much more clear. Uh, in in, uh, in the past uh, five or six years, there have been a series of studies coming out where um, a variety of groups, including a group that I've worked with, we've been trying to iterate towards kind of an under, better understanding of the temperature changes that we've seen over the last half a century for which we have a smattering of human um, collected or automated collected uh, weather records over Antarctica. And you've actually been going there? Uh, I've not been there for about a decade. Uh, during uh, my uh, graduate research, which is at the Bird Polar Research Center at Ohio State University, I worked in uh, McMurdo Station as part of a weather forecasting program. And McMurdo is sort of the, <clears throat> the biggest one down there. That's right. right McMurdo the is the hub of research in, uh, in Antarctica. It lies... Uh, in uh, a place with historical relevance because it was where the uh, early explorers would, uh, basically as, as far south as the early explorers would get before they would embark on their, their journeys uh, in Antarctica. It gets about uh, um, 1,200 people in the summer working there and a much smaller group of people in the winter. That was a couple of years ago at Palmer Station, a really small U.S. research in what they call the banana belt of Antarctica because yes. it's so much warmer, but still pretty darn cold. But that's the little strip that reaches out towards Chile. What you're talking about now is the western side of the main continent, right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And so specifically, what are you finding you know, relative to the temperatures you thought were there and, and what are the implications? It's a really good question. Uh, what we've been able to just uh, kind of gather over the past several years is is based on on proxy evidence on nearby um, records from nearby weather stations over Antarctica, uh, and we've tried to kind of interpolate what's happening in West Antarctica in a variety of studies. And they have uh, they've suggested that West Antarctica has been uh, has been warming, but we haven't really had um, a very good in place observational weather record. So this is something that we we knew we had some pieces of it kind of laying around, but we, we had never um, put together a reliable record for this. And so this was this was really what we did in this study. We put together uh, a variety of observations taken by humans 
in the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s. Actually, from temperature reading stations? or From, from actual um, temperature measurements up at Bird Station in West Antarctica, which was a, uh, a human-inhabited camp starting in the International Geophysical Year, which was 1957. That's when kind of modern observations started in Antarctica. Um, the U.S. operated a base at, at Bird Station up until the early 70s, and then they more or less abandoned it, uh, and it's been inhabited sporadically in some, just during summertime uh, since then. Uh, in, the, in the early 80s, a weather station, uh, an automatic weather station was installed, and um, that's been collecting data somewhat sporadically over the last 30 years. It has outages due to power, due to power failures, especially during the cold winters. And you just don't have an opportunity for humans to go visit it very often. So one of the things um, that enabled this study was the University of Wisconsin, which, which operates the automatic weather uh, station program. They... Um, they were able to go out and retrieve this uh, weather station that's been out there for over 20 years uh, and recalibrate the record, look at any drift that occurred, and, and uh, create a, a much more reliable record of temperature. So we took that record and the human-based record and put them together, and then we infilled some of the gaps with some other methodology. So this combination of the continuous automated and sort of the manual it's showing that, what, it's super alarming? I mean, you said this ice sheet is about the size of Mexico. What, it, what does it yeah. mean that it, it's warming? It shows that the, the um, that it's warming much more rapidly than we, than we previously thought. That means um, what we've seen is about uh, a half a degree Celsius per decade, so about almost a degree Fahrenheit per decade over the last 50 years of warming. So pretty pretty rapid uh, changes and one of the important findings of this study that we hadn't seen in previous studies was that we have um, significant warming occurring during the summer months, uh, and that's important because West Antarctica is a very cold place, and the only months in which we actually get melt is during summertime. So uh, if if the warming continues uh, as it has been occurring for the last 50 years, we might expect to see enhanced meld at the surface. The reason that's important is because the West Antarctic ice sheet to date um, has been its its demise, its its um, melt into the ocean has been driven mainly by warming ocean temperatures. So it's a it's a very unique ice sheet in that it's a submarine based ice sheet. It sits its base sits below sea level, so it's exposed to the Warming ocean temperatures As that you to, see, like in Greenland and elsewhere, where it's land-based. Greenland, Greenland, and the and the East Antarctic ice sheet are both, um, for the most part, up uh, up on top of land, so they aren't as exposed to ocean temperatures as West Antarctica. So we've seen um, the melt driven from below, kind of in West Antarctica, but we haven't seen much from above. Um, this study suggests that if we continue to see summer warming, we could start to see some some enhanced melt in, in the forthcoming decades. And sea level rise. Uh, it's right. possible that that would contribute to sea level rise. Well, thank you. We'll certainly be revisiting this topic. That was Andrew Monahan, climate scientist at NCAR here in Boulder, talking about the new research on the rapid warming of West Antarctica. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and was engineered by Jim Pullen. Shelley Schlender is our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Jeff Pearson Friends and the Australian National Government. 
Additional headline assistance from Rabba Kamal and Shelley Schlender. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Beth Bartel.